our series on preparing our home this morning. Last week, we spoke about the whole idea of being devoted, and we talked about how being devoted is about being persistently obstinate. It's not just about having an intention or a heart for, it is actually a heart for and a commitment to that is uh, coupled with actual action. Now, before we go any further, I want to clarify something. I am not into checkbox Christianity. I have lived checkbox Christianity before. What I mean by that is that I think that God um, sets up a task list for me, and I tick them off, and when I tick them off, I give it to God, I get blessing. So it's like an exchange thing. It's like, God, I have attended church, I have served on teams, I have read my Bible, I prayed, I have tithed, I have done all of these things, now God, please give me blessing. That's not what I'm talking about. Or, or, or maybe it's not so much a blessing, but the smile of God. That's not what this is about. But it's about coupling our heart, our intentions with actions. And that is what our faith, our Christian faith is meant to be about. As James writes in his uh, epistle, um, he says in James 2:17, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I can say I love God, I believe He is real, but if my actions do not say that, my faith is actually dead. I could say that I uh, love and, and, and trust in pilots, but if I never step foot onto a plane because I am always scared of what's going to happen, my faith in the pilots is really not there, it's dead, it is ineffective, it is not doing any. it's useless. And in fact, James goes on to say a few verses later, you see that about Abraham. So this is specifically about the father of faith in the Bible, Abraham. And it says, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. That's really interesting. James is saying basically, as Abraham worked, his faith was activated. His faith was not activated if he did not work. And then he goes on to say, in fact, his faith was completed by his works. Without the works, the faith stays in this lousy, baby, immature, ineffective form. It is the works coupled with the faith that makes amazing things happen. So when Jesus says, according to your faith, be it unto you, I think he is not just saying, uh, uh, like, forcing this faith out of you, but he's saying, if you believe in me, if you believe uh, what I'm saying, if you believe my will, if you're searching after me, do the things that will bring you closer to the things that I'm saying to you. So this whole I, a part of having ideas about what we can do in the building, this might be your step of faith. Because God has placed things in you, and if you are not working towards it, putting it into a practical form, your faith is a whining little baby. We are not meant to have whining baby faith. We're meant to have little mustard seed faith that moves mountains. That's what this is all about. This is not just about just the practicals that... It is not a legalistic thing. It is something that activates our heart. So that's what the devotion is about. Let's read on Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. That's our core text for the rest of the series. And it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, 
to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. And so last week we focused on the and they devoted themselves. Today, we are going to move on from that. And so it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, when I was looking at the commentaries on this particular verse, Bible commentaries help you uh, uncover maybe what is going on here, helps you piece together different thoughts. And some commentators, uh, they broke this up into a list of four actions. Uh, the teaching, the fellowship, uh, the breaking of bread or the communion, and um, the prayers. And they say, if you do these four things, you are basically doing what the early church did to disciple people. Remember who we're talking about, people who recently converted to Christ, people who just had found Christ, right? And so he said, do these four things and you will be discipling. That's what some commentators said. But as I was looking into this, something was a bit interesting to me. Because when I look at the writing, um, the English, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, comma, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, in Greek, um, there are no punctuation. So there wasn't a comma necessarily there. However, if Luke, who was writing this, was simply wanting to construct a list, he would have gone to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. In fact, some of the later Greek manuscripts, because when we uh, translate the Bible, we have to use these manuscripts, right? So some of the later ones which were found has that extra and. But the earliest ones that we currently have do not have that end. I know it is getting nerdy, right? It's getting super nerdy. It's like, come on, Nate, get on with it. But I found it super interesting because it tells me that Luke probably did not want to make a list of four items necessarily. There were four items, all four necessary items, but he grouped them up into the teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And another thing that stands out to me is that what most fits in my thinking is that the teaching and the prayers and the fellowship and the breaking of bread, right? But no, he doesn't do that. He says to the teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, two separate things or two separate pairs, if you will. They're all interconnected. Don't let me say, hear me say that, oh, you can just do half of them. That's not what this is about. We're doing all four, but why did Luke pair them up together? Next week, Pastor Beck's going to talk about the breaking of bread and the prayers. So you have to come back for that. That's going to be good fun. But today, I'm going to talk about what I think is going on when Luke is saying that they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. What is with this pair of practices that they did? 
All right, and I was looking into, um, I was thinking about this group of people that devoted themselves. Uh, I know I shared a little bit about it, but something else stood out to me. See, the people that converted on the day of Pentecost, which is what happens in Luke, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 2, they were Jewish people. They were Jewish people that came from different nations, different places, different towns, and they all came to Jerusalem to observe the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Pentecost. And so this is one of the four feasts that in the Jewish calendar they were told that they need to observe. And especially when the temple uh, was um, uh, uh, constructed, they needed to come to this temple because there were certain sacrifices that were going to be made. All right? So these are people that likely are very devout followers of God. These are not people who are uneducated about who God is. Why do I say that? Is because they were making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem from wherever they came from to celebrate this festival. This means that they were taking time off their businesses, their farms, their work, whatever it was that they did to make money. They possibly uh, had to pay to prepare for this journey. They had to get to Jerusalem and find lodging, which wasn't necessarily easy. And they had to be prepared to celebrate the festival with all of these offerings and all that kind of stuff. So these guys... I mean, some people argue that all of this became part of their cultural identity, just like I'm in Australia, but I still celebrate Chinese New Year. Maybe it's just a cultural thing. But let me put forward to you, if I needed to go into central China to celebrate Chinese New Year, if that's the only way to celebrate Chinese New Year, you will never see me celebrate Chinese New Year. Never. I don't even really want to go to Beijing. The number of people there scare the heck out of me. Can you imagine all the Chinese people in the world had to go to China and to Beijing for Chinese New Year? And that was a necessary part of the culture. There would be billions of people in that tiny little space and you would not even see a picture of me in that place. I would not want to be anywhere near it. The only reason I would go for such a pilgrimage is because I believe in the significance of this practice. Make sense? So, the apostles weren't teaching people who didn't know God. They were teaching people who didn't know Jesus. They were devout followers of God the God, if you will, of the Old Testament. They worship Yahweh. We still worship Yahweh. But they worship God and were waiting for the Messiah. This is who these people were. They were waiting for the Messiah to come because the Messiah was promised in the Old Testament and so they were still waiting for the Messiah. And so on the day of Pentecost, when they heard uh, the, 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 the apostles and the disciples starting to speak out in tongues and they were hearing praise to God in their own language, they're like, what is going on? What does Peter do? He tells them that they are part of the humanity that has killed Jesus. He points them to the Messiah and says the Messiah is the fulfillment of, Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Messiah. Now I started to think, why do these people not know? 
if the Messiah has come, surely they'll be prepared. They were the ones that actually memorized Scripture to know about the Messiah. Well, because Jesus didn't actually look like the Messiah they were waiting for. They were expecting a revolutionary leader, someone who would overthrow the Roman Empire. And so when they went around, they saw all of these Roman people all around still paying the Roman tax, having to uh, uh, obey all the Roman laws. They were like, well, Messiah hasn't come. Life goes on. However, on the day of Pentecost, when they understood that Jesus was the Messiah and his whole mission wasn't to overthrow the Roman Empire, and there was something in them that went, wow, this guy really, really was the Messiah and had a different intention from God. What was going on? Why did they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship? This is what I think. I think it's because they went, oh, I'm meant to be living differently. My whole life following Yahweh is incomplete and perhaps even skewed. I have been making my annual pilgrimages, multiple, multiple pilgrimages, at least three times a year. These guys were traveling to Jerusalem. They loved, or at the very least feared, and wanted to worship this God. And suddenly when they realized Messiah died, and rose again, I don't think I understand this God as well as I thought I did. In modern terms, I would say that they were deconstructing their previously held beliefs. They were evaluating it. They were going, whoa, what is going on? And so, their curiosity led them, I believe, at least in a part, to devote themselves to the teaching and to the fellowship. Because they needed to understand and know more, my life doesn't actually line up with this new Messiah. In fact, these guys are telling me that I killed the Messiah and that the Messiah willingly died for me and that God has accomplished something else and that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and what is going on? And so they wanted to learn more about the God that they were already worshipping. And something that strikes me about that is that sometimes I think that we only want to know what we want to know about God. And we don't want to necessarily know about God the things that God wants to reveal about Himself. I know that Jesus died for me. I know that my sins are washed clean. I know that I get eternal life if I confess Jesus as Lord in both my heart and with my lips. I know these things. Jesus is love. God is love. Great. I will stop there. And hence, we don't devote ourselves to the teaching and the fellowship because we think that we know enough. I'm wondering if that is at least a part of how we do things. But I want us to take a step deeper in our walk with God. And last year, as I was doing my research, I came across, in fact, my supervisor sent me this, this, this really uh, wonderful paper 
on what Pentecostal discipleship should look like. And I was like, oh, Pentecostal discipleship. How was that different? But, you know, that was cool. And I started to read it. And one of the things that struck me is that this author was trying to boil down the key essential elements of us following Jesus. And he does this by talking about three key elements. He calls them orthodoxy, orthopathy, and orthopraxis. That's how he spelled them. And some of us might be maybe somewhat familiar with the first word, orthodox. And when we think about orthodox, we think about old people doing old things in old ways. That's not what orthodoxy is about. Orthodoxy is literally right thinking. Orthopathy is right feeling. Orthopraxy is right practicing, right behaviors. And why, we, uh, why some Christians call themselves orthodox, it is an old title, is because they believe that they are the ones that have the right thinking and the right way of understanding, the right beliefs about Jesus. That's simply what orthodox means. If you are still not very f- clear about this, we have got orthodontists. What do orthodontists do? They have right teeth. Orthopedics, what does it mean? Right feet. You want right feet. That's what it means. And so when it comes to our discipleship uh, journey with Jesus, this author put something forward that I was like, man, it's so simple, it's so clear, but it's so helpful. Me following Jesus is not only about right thinking, but neither is it only about right feeling, but neither is it only about right practice. When you Get Christianity that is only trying to have things right in one of these three arenas, you get crackpots. The people who are always right thinking, right thinking, they go around criticizing every other person that thinks anything different from them. For the people that are right feeling, oh, I just want to be in the presence of God. Like, come on! Is Jesus just a feeling? The next moment that the person's offended, they leave the church. Why? Because I didn't feel the right things about God. In fact, that's the, probably the scariest thing for me because that is most attached with Pentecostalism. One of my lecturers in college told me, we need to be careful that the move of the Spirit is separated from adrenaline. Adrenaline isn't a Holy Spirit is excitement that comes from my hormones. I don't want a hormonal relationship with my God. I don't want just an emotional relationship with my God. But then you also get some Christians that only want to do orthopraxis. Orthopraxis, they want to have the right practice. You know, the fasting that God wants is to serve the down and outers. Yes, absolutely, but at the cost of worship, no way. At the cost of right beliefs, no way. At the cost of what the Bible teaches us? No, we can't do that. But are we supposed to love people? Yes. So what this author was saying is that our journey with God is about orthodoxy, orthopathy, and orthopractice. Right mind, right heart, right hands. Right mind, right heart, right hands. I think what was going on in the early church is that when they encountered the Holy Spirit and when they counted Jesus, what they decided that they needed to do is that they needed to check if they had the right heart, the right mind, and the right hands. They needed to check themselves in all arenas. And I think that is why the teaching and the fellowship necessarily go together with each other. Because they didn't go to classes to increase in their knowledge. They learned about things and immediately put them into practice. 
In fact, this is something that I think we need to realize, that the Hebrew mindset about learning is not about knowledge, but is only when you are able to action something out have you learned it. It's a very apprenticeship-like learning. You don't sit in classrooms to learn, you go through life and learn. And that is something that I think we in a Western society need to capture once again. I think that we can be quite happy to be able to regurgitate the right knowledge, but not necessarily have the right practice that is in alignment with that knowledge. And this is part of the problem with our Christianity. It is shallow because we only have one out of three legs, or maybe two of the three legs. A few um, years ago, God put on my heart that I needed to revisit uh, discipleship. I needed to understand discipleship in a fresh and a new way. And so, how did He do this? He told me to seriously invest into people. And I didn't want to do it because people aren't always very nice. But I did it anyway, and I also found myself actually really loving how God was unpacking discipleship in the Word to me. I was reading these things, and things were popping to me. Like, for example, how Barnabas would care for uh, uh, Saul, who was rejected by everyone else, but without Barnabas, we would not have had uh, the number one evangelist of the Gentile world. We might not be here today without Saul. Well, we would not be here today if not for Barnabas. And say, so, who's more important? Well, both. Why is it about importance? But what God showed me is that we can all be Barnabases. Some of us might become Saul slash Pauls. Great, fantastic. We love you. We will send you on your mission. But at the very least, we can all be Barnabases. And that's what I was thinking. And I was seeing all these links to, to parenting and how I was thinking about this. And I was like, this is great. And so I started, I started discipling with a greater vigor, uh, with a new, fresh mindset. I started to practice the things that I was learning. And it was exciting. And I was like, yes, I've got it until things stopped working the way that I thought they should. And guess what? My heart stopped being in it. Or rather, my heart was feeling things that weren't very nice. What did I feel in the midst of that season? I felt frustrated that what I was teaching and practicing wasn't good enough to change that person. I was getting concerned and worried in my heart to the point of not being able to sleep some nights because my disciples weren't living lives that were going very well. I felt it. I felt my heart was like, God, if this is what it means to care for people, I don't want to care for people. I started to also get insecurity coming into my heart. Maybe it's you. Maybe you don't know how to teach. Maybe you're too abrasive. Maybe you're too pushy. Maybe you're just a terrible person. Maybe you should stop trying to do these things. Maybe, 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 maybe. Insecurities. My heart was being hit as I was trying to practice what I was learning. You see, that's what I think is the key thing in all of this, that when I learn something and I practice it, often the heart lags behind. It needs to play catch-up. 
or there'll be certain things that don't work out the way that we like. And we are going to feel things that aren't very nice. And those feelings are going to cause us to question whether we've got the right thoughts or the right practice. That's why people are deconstructing the Christian faith. Because they are in situations that they practice what they thought were the right things and they're thinking the things that they thought were the right things, but their heart is going, oh my gosh, if those are the right things and I'm feeling this way, it must be the wrong thing. And so they're going, maybe I need to change my practices or I need to change my thoughts. What about changing your heart? The Bible tells us that above all, the heart is deceitful, it's full of things, it's, it has this complexity that is in our hearts. It is not always given to words, and so we don't always know what our heart is saying, but we definitely feel it. You see, I did not know ages ago that when I'm angry, it's because I love the person deeply. It used to be that when I'm angry, I hate the person, I never want to see them again. But the more I learn how to hear my heart, when my heart is angry and the thoughts that jump out of it is that this person's an idiot and you should kick them out of your life, I suddenly realize, no, 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 no. It's actually because I care so much for this person that I'm scared to lose them. And so I need to be really careful about my right thinking and my right practice because if I know that these things are right, then I get to check my heart. Create in me a clean heart, O oh Lord. Soften my heart, Lord, to the things that matter to you. How does that happen? How do you change your heart? How does God do that? Orthodoxy and orthopraxis. When you have orthodoxy and you have orthopraxis and you persist in them, I hope and I believe that you will develop orthopathy. You're saying, God, how am I meant to feel about this? So in the midst of my frustration, in my worry, my anger towards these disciples who did not look anything like I was expecting them to be, I was like, God, help me. What do I need to do? You know what he said? Love them. It's like, you love them, God. Like, yes, you did. I know you did. I don't know how to love them. Great, so I'll show you. What does that even mean? Take them out for a meal and hang out with them. But I don't want to. They're annoying and frustrating. Good. Hang out with them. Do you know why the early church devoted themselves to the teaching and the fellowship? It's because without the fellowship, you would not be disciples. Without a practical to your understanding of God, you're no longer than the, the, you're no lo better than the atheist who's able to regurgitate Christian doctrine. I want to be better, more faithful, perhaps, to God than the atheist who knows more about my faith than I do. An atheist might understand orthodoxy. But we'll never be able to have orthopathy. That's special to me. But that's what I need to work on. And so when the community of God doesn't look the way that I want it to be, but I know I'm meant to be in it, I'm in it. The number of people over the last few years that I have found out that they are questioning 
whether they are necessary to the fellowship of God. The fellowship of the church is mind-blowing. I've got people literally saying, I say, hey man, missed you on Sunday, what happened? Oh, I didn't think anyone would miss me. What's that all about? So you, so, you, so you know that being in the fellowship is good. Yes, yes, yes. But you were worried that no one will like you. Yes. You're worried that you're going to be rejected. Yes. So instead of being rejected, you rejected yourself. Ejected yourself. And stayed at home or did something else. Yes. Technology does us a disservice when it gives us so much information, but not always a route into practicing it. See, our church might dabble one day in an online-type gathering of some, I, can't, I don't even know if we can call it gathering, we an online sermon worship set. But an online-only church hasn't developed to the point where you have to face me even if you are so riddled with insecurity that you don't know how I think about you. There is nothing like having to face someone when you are so ashamed and you just want to hide and run away, but you see them and you, you, you meet them face to face and you look them in the eyes and realize that you have been loved all along. You want orthopathy, you want a right heart, you've got to learn what is the right thoughts and the right practice, and these things will uncover for you the things that are wrong. I am so impatient. I am so easily frustrated by people who do the things that I tell them not to do. <laughs> I am so flipping mad at people that do that. And then I realize I'm not mad because they're stupid, I'm mad because I love them and I feel so helpless and I have taken way too much on myself to try to change them than rather than just loving them along their journey. They're not stupid, they're just human. Because I realize how often people would have had to be so patient with me on my journey as well. So why did Luke say that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship? I think it's because the teaching is not complete without the fellowship. For all of you who are listening to this podcast right now, how are you in community? Not what do you think about community. Not what it's like for you when you are in community. But are you in God's community. Because if we want to be a church that is able to sustain and hold new life, I believe that we need to be a church that understands the importance of the teaching and the fellowship. We need to be people that want great teaching and to be able to evaluate it and pull it apart and to be people that can sit face-to-face -face and have discussions about life. What is it about our communities sometimes in this world that we talk about the fluffy stuff, but 
sometimes it's hard to talk about the deep things. Maybe if we start to bring these together, we're going to find a richness. You see, I, I think that the early church was full of people that would listen to what the apostles were teaching, and then in the fellowship, while they were having a meal together, which they did all the time, by the way, you would start going, hey, what's that all about? What's that supposed to be? And you know what? When we read Acts 2.42, I think that the second half of it is full of things that happen because they listened to the teaching and were in community. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They started to live together and went, all these possessions I've got isn't maybe that important. Perhaps. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. I love that description. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts. What would our community look like if we were devoted to the teaching and the fellowship? How would our lives look different if we had this sense that, you know, what I understand and know and how I live this out, both in my heart and with my hands, what would that look like? One final thing I want to bring to you, Paul instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourselves, yourself and your hearers. Another translation says, keep a close watch on your life and your doctrine. This is Paul instructing Timothy. He says, keep a watch. Look into this. Work this out. Your life and your doctrine. Your life is an expression of your doctrine. Your doctrine is an expression of your life. Your life is an expression of your doctrine. And your doctrine is an expression of your life. They are inseparable and needs to be looked at. This is something that I've learned I only learn something and I hold on to something when I'm living it out. So my doctrine is confirmed by my living. But my living is meant to be out of the values of my heart. So it's talking about my doctrine. And so when the early church discovered that they were living differently to what the Messiah was trying to do, what did they do? They changed their life to fit in with the new doctrine that they were receiving. How did they change their life? They devoted themselves to the teaching and the fellowship. See, church, as we go on from here into this next season, I'm not saying that my teaching is the apostles' teaching. I don't think I could ever put myself into that kind of a bucket. But unfortunately, we don't have any of those apostles' teaching available to us. But we have teaching and we can together do fellowship. We can watch each other's life and doctrine. Why? Because when we persist in what is true life and true doctrine, you will be saved, and those that watch you and those that hear you can also be saved. That's what Paul's teaching Timothy. 
our Christian faith is meant to be about right thinking, right feeling, and right practice. We will hear things. I do believe that quite often it starts with right thinking. That's why Peter taught right thinking that flows in the right feeling and practice. I tend to think that is right practice before you hit the heart. My right thinking will impact the right practice, will impact the right heart, which will impact the right thinking, which will impact the right doing, which will impact the right heart. My head is helping my hands, my hands is helping my heart, my heart is helping my head, my head is helping my hands, and we start this process. And it begins to build. Take any one of those three away, and you stop the process. Can I just ask us to pray this morning and to reflect and to consider about at the end of our gathering and for once I've more or less hit my time. Praise the Lord. Right practice. <laughs> Feels good. But can I just ask that Holy Spirit highlights to you Is it something in your mind, something in your hands, or something in your heart that perhaps God is working on right now? Is there something that you need to do, something you need to learn, something you need to persist in, in order to continue to keep watch on your life and your doctrine? Holy Spirit, I pray that you are here this morning and you are speaking to us. I pray, God, that we open ourselves to you and you speak this morning. Highlight to us the areas that are not in sync with what it is that you're wanting to do. If it is our heads pointed out, if it is our hearts pointed out, if it is our hands pointed out, if it's more than one of these arenas, then help us, Lord. Help us to come in alignment with what it is that you are wanting to do. God, you are so magnificent. You are so amazing. The only reason why we go through this process is because we are recipients of your amazing grace. And so when the going gets tough, when things don't feel right, when things hit a wall, when I'm discouraged and I don't know what to do or I'm confused, God, bring me back to the cross that my Messiah came to die on the cross for my sin, that I may live. And so God, this life that I live, I live it for you. For me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. Help me to put that into my head, into my hands, and into my heart. For me to live is Christ. Knowing that that is the safest way to live. Knowing is the best place to be in. And I pray this in your mighty name. Amen. I sense that there might be some people that are feeling like, oh man, there's an adjustment that you need to make. Hey, we get fellowship time now. You get to talk to someone, myself included, if you're going, hmm, you know, I, I'm wondering about this aspect of my life. What do you think? What can I do? How can you hold me accountable even? Hmm. I love that a lot of that does happen in our church family. I hear it. 
I hear about situations. I'm involved in many of these situations. It's awesome. But let's take it to another level, church. Because right hands, right heart, right head, growing church is going to be exciting. Thank you so much, everyone. Let's have some fellowship. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Live Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.